We are continuing the Sermon on the Mount series, so turn your Bibles to Matthew 6. Um, before Christmas, we went through Matthew 5, starting with the Beatitudes, and, and there's a theme we're seeing in the Sermon on the Mount, and that is, we get in trouble when we are worried about our righteousness. That's where the trouble begins for Christians. And in chapter 5, what we saw was when you are so focused on doing your righteousness, you lower the law and you end up ruining morals, right? And so, and not murdering, you think angry is, being, anger, being angry is okay. Or by not having adultery or adulterous affairs, you think lust is okay. So the morals become corrupted because you're trying to do your righteousness, Jesus tells us. And then we get to chapter 6, and he sort of he shifts to say now for religious things. What does that mean for being religious? And this is where it gets really tricky. Because with religion, you have to do things. But the risk is we do it for the wrong reason. So we try to do our righteousness. That's what we're going to talk about today. And there are three areas he goes into. And I think these three areas have a unique unique relationship in answering this question. The law is summed up that we should love the Lord our God and love our neighbor as ourselves. And it seems that these three areas are broad ways of doing that. Giving is directly loving our neighbor. Fasting is a direct way of loving God. And prayer is really both. When you pray, you communicate with God, but you also do so on behalf of your neighbor. This morning, we're looking at giving. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, from Matthew 6, verses 1-4. to Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There is an illustration that Spurgeon has told, told years ago. I may have done it here before, but I think it applies. It's this illustration of a kingdom where there's a guy, like imagine a medieval kingdom, and there's a guy that's a carrot farmer, right? And he grows carrots. That's what he does. And one day he comes out to one of his fields and he sees the largest, most beautifully orange carrot. And a lot of you like that color. Orange. Carrots. And he thinks to himself, right off the bat, I'm taking this and I'm presenting this to the king. So he returns to the king. He sets up the appointment. He shows up and he presents the gift of this most beautiful carrot. And the king says, this is the most beautiful carrot I've ever seen. I want to give you the land next to the land where you farm. That's I just I want to thank you and in return give you that land. The carrot farmer leaves ecstatic. Well, someone overhears this story. This person that overhears the story raises horses. Thinks to himself, "Wow, that's a pretty good deal. I'll just find my greatest horse, present that to the king." So he walks in. He sets up the appointment. Has the horse. The king walks out and he says, "Here, take my horse." And he hands him the reins and. The king hands the horse off to someone else and thanks the man and begins to leave. And the man scratches his head and he's standing there kind of shocked and the king turns around and says, see, you're remembering the carrot farmer, aren't you? And the guy said, yeah, what happened? He said, well, the carrot farmer, when he presented me the carrot, 
he was giving me the carriage. But when you brought this horse in, you were giving yourself the horse. And then the man felt ashamed and left. And I think this is a good illustration of giving. That it's very difficult to separate the part of giving that is truly, honestly giving to God from the part that's really us hoping to get something from it. And I don't know that's the most perfect illustration for this because it still has an element of the carrot farmer having produced, in a way, the carrot in his field. But what we have in the Gospel is the fact that we've been given everything in Christ. Everything has been given to us. And it's from that posture that Christians are now freed to turn and give everything to others. That's the posture. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at three things, because that's what we do. right? The wrong reason to give, the right reason to give, and then how to do that, how to give. So it's very obvious what the wrong reason to give is in this passage. Jesus doesn't take much time. In first, in chapter 6, verse 2, after having just explained in verse 1, don't do your righteousness so that other people will see. Here in verse 2 he says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. This is a extreme thing, this idea of sounding a trumpet. Some commentators say, probably just hyperbole, there's probably no trumpet. And it's important when we get to uh, hyperbole in the Bible, that we don't just tell ourselves, well, I've never done that. I've never blown a trumpet prior to tithing, so probably I'm good. You know, we read things like, um, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I don't say that, so I'm not a fool. Yay! I mean, we need to actually dig a little deeper. What was this trumpet blowing? What was going on? And conversely, do I do that? How involved in the trumpet blowing am I? The idea of blowing the trumpet then, Calvin says he thinks it was real, and I tend to go with Calvin. Okay, So he, he says that, um, the, that the idea of blowing the trumpet was a way to announce that you're there. right? We're here, we're ready to give, this is the giving moment, and then those that are in need would come out. And no, this is when I come out and receive the gifts that we need, or the money we need, or the resources. And so what you have then in hypocrisy is there's always an element of it making sense. I mean, you have to blow the trumpet, right? You know, I can see how that's somewhat self-congratulatory, but I have to blow it. I have to let the needy people know I'm coming. And thus is the problem with hypocrisy, is it always takes a necessary component and makes it everything. The word hypocrisy, hypocrisy or hypocrite, we remember from last week, is um, this idea from acting or the stage. And the, and the problem is, with a religious hypocrite, is that an actor is not trying to fool the audience. The actor, when they go, like when you watch The Tonight Show and the actor's talking about the show, the movie they just filmed in, clo- in the, the premiere, they don't say, they don't try to pretend that's really them, do they? But hypocrites, when it comes to religious hypocrisy, the goal really is to try to put over on other people This is really me. This is actually the true me. I'm actually this benevolent, this amazing. And here's the uh, the scariest part about it, though. Um, We all have heard stories of actors who unfortunately did not get out of the role. Remember with Heath Ledger, I think that was the question mark. Uh, Remember Jack? I don't know if you heard the story. Jack Nicholson had said, "Watch out when you play the Joker. It's very difficult when you're done 
doing because you're going to feel so much of that. So indeed, being an actor, I think actors would tell you, sometimes it's very hard to shake all of the emotions and the feelings and the empathy that you have for the character. And so it is with being a hypocrite in general. We are sometimes so merged with our hypocrisy that it isn't easy to see. Very difficult. And that's the challenge. We come to these statements by Jesus and it seems obvious, well, I don't do that. Maybe that's our first warning sign. Because I would argue that all of us go this direction on some level. That's why Jesus is telling his disciples, beware of this. This is very easy to do. All of us, on some level, have hypocrisy. What does that look like? We blow the trumpets, right? We, um, Calvin says this, he says that in drawing out the poor to receive money, again, they, it, it may, it gives off this sense that it's a needed thing. And I began to wonder when I read that, um, why would, w- wouldn't a component of giving be that the needy and you know each other? That you would already know the people who are in need. That you wouldn't have to blow the trumpet, but you would know what door to go to. Or what place to go to to provide the resource. So hypocrisy can create these false um, actions, these false senses of righteousness. And, and a deeper concern with hypocrisy is why do we tend toward it? What is it about hypocrisy that's appealing? And Sinclair Ferguson says that when Jesus talks about the Pharisees, whom he calls hypocrites, he's angry, right? He's very, he's not just, hey, tone it down a bit, guys. It's very intense. And Ferguson says there's something in hypocrisy that makes God out to be a tyrant. So when we think we're giving things to people, we're the ones, we're the, we're the, the need, the ones that are meeting the needs of people with our resources, when that hypocrisy sets in, at our at its root, there's actually a distancing of God, almost a closing off of Him. And we talked about that last week, that we put the mask on because we don't want to be exposed to other people but to God. So we wear the hypocrisy mask. And I thought of uh, a passage that just, I think, really shines this, is the talents. Um, when you look at Matthew 25 and you hear about the talents, there are the three servants who have talents given to them to multiply in the absence of their master. So the first guy gets five, the second one gets two or three, or it should be two or three, who wants to tell me? And the third one gets one talent. Well, he's the one that buries the talent. And do you remember what he says when the master shows up? This is an astounding statement. He doesn't, you know, this is what I love about parables and about the Bible, is most of us would say, oh, I just got busy, right? We'd have some great excuse. Not this guy. What does he say? Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. Honesty. Why did he bury the talent? Honesty. Because he was afraid of God. God's a tyrant. And if God's a tyrant, the last thing I'm going to do is risk my neck on losing his resources. And I think hypocrisy is similar in that it appears to be so benevolent, but probably, and Jesus doesn't necessarily go into this here, but it's there a little bit, it holds back on some level. I don't think the church would thrive with hypocrites. When you read the, the, the book of Acts, the early church, they're not hypocritical. Right? They're giving. They're sharing. They're throwing everything together, except for one example, Ananias and Sapphira. 
And remember, this is the couple who sells their field, goes back and says, here's the proceeds, and then they die because they lied about it. Peter says, is that the amount? Is that really the amount? Yeah, that's the amount. You're dead. Boom. So I think we're all kind of scared of that. God's a tyrant, right? What's the big deal? So we have to give everything if I sell a field and just want to give half of it? It's a very scary story. We always read those stories like when Uzzah touches the ark and he dies. You're like, he's just trying to hold it from falling. Give him a break. Chill. Well, the reality is, we're the foolish ones. Ananias had every right to either not sell the field or to sell it and say, I'm only going to give you half because I'm going to give half to someone else or I'm going to build up my IRA or whatever. It wasn't the holding it back that was the problem. It was the deception. Hypocrisy is deception. And so as we move into this passage and we look at giving, I think it's important we ask ourselves, are we being deceptive? Are we feeling good about ourselves by giving? How are we viewing God in our giving? Are we trying to sort of keep Him at bay? I give a certain amount, He'll go easy on me. Or are we not giving? Because we're afraid that if we do, you know, God's already left me alone. I need to keep my resources close because without, without my resources, God doesn't care for me. Who's going to take care of me? And as we think about giving this morning, we also need to remember it's not the tithe only. It's time. It's energy. It's empathy. It's moving within, it's moving close to one another and caring for one another. But that's what hypocrisy looks like. And that's not the way to do it. But we need to look at the right way to give because that is in this passage. The, uh, the opposite then, of hypocrisy, which is giving for other people to see, right, is doing so secretly. This is really hard. Have you, let's look at the verse and I just, this is one of those things you, a lot of commentators pass over because it's so tricky. He says in verse three, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, keep it a secret. Don't tell anybody. Right? But that's an odd phrase. How would I ever give with my right hand and not have my left hand know what I'm doing? And so, most of the guys that I read are talking about this again as a, med- a metaphorical description about, you know, not only are we supposed to keep it a secret from everyone else, but we're really supposed to keep it a secret from ourselves. Isn't that kind of an interesting thought? In other words, we're not supposed to dwell on what we're giving. And so let me unpack that thought a little bit more. Um, if you love something, I would, if you have something in your hand and you grasp it with both hands, right? Then you can't really let it go without the left hand knowing. But if you are able to hand something away that your left hand doesn't know about, if it had a brain, then maybe it wasn't something you were holding on to so tightly. Does that make sense? So all of a sudden it seems that what Jesus is saying is don't hold on to things so tightly. Don't have possessions be your thing. So thinking back to Acts, the church stopped thinking, these are my things, and started thinking, how can I share resources? And so for people who tend to give a lot, most of the time the characteristic is they see these things as God's things. And they're able to hold them loosely. Are you able to hold things somewhat loosely? What does it look like? What do you do with things that you're holding loosely? My father-in-law is here today. Dan, you can wave. He's not going to. There's, I've been in this family for 19 years, of course, and when I dated for four years before that, so more than half my life. 
And there's a story that's probably been told every year. Where you just, for whatever reason, this story pops back up, and here it is. Dan was, uh, Marsha decides to have a garage sale. Marsha, my mother-in-law, she's not here, so we can pick on her. Decides to have a garage sale. Dan is an avid golfer, has a new set of golf clubs. But at the same time, he's also laid up in bed because of a surgery. So at one point, Marsha says, can I sell your, your old clubs? Sure, sell the old ones. Then several weeks later, when it comes time to get back into golf, he's recovered, cannot find his golf clubs. And Marsha says, what? Oh, those are your nice golf clubs. And the story is a guy walks up in the garage sale and says, hey, how much were the golf clubs? She sees the set, Dan's brand new set, and says, 50 bucks. Sells the golf clubs, they're gone. Um, and that, and then apparently, uh, okay, yeah. oh, so far, yeah, yeah, 25 bucks. They were probably worth like 300 back then. Um, so, you, the, the, it's a funny story because of one, you, you have to know Marcia, she gets kind of busy and going and it's a hilarious thing. But I think the bigger thing is this, it's the garage sale person's dream. Like, don't you dream when you go to a garage sale that happening? Oh, it's a Stradivarius, I don't know, 30 bucks, you know? Uh, okay. Um, and yet, for Dan, it meant like that was my new set. That was my that was my thing. So for Marsha, she was able to let it go. It's a silly illustration, but it proves the point. The looser we hold on to things, the easier we can get. And so what Jesus is saying is, how self-forgetful are you? Not just in the area of your possessions, but in the area of the area of your personhood. Are you someone that takes yourself incredibly seriously? Or do you find yourself in Christ? In 1 Corinthians 3.18, Paul is really working through an amazing dilemma for this group of people, the Corinthian church, and that they've begun to follow Apollos and Paul. and They begin to identify their whole religion on the leader. And then, he goes into this whole idea of rewards, which I won't go into right now, though it applies. Uh, we'll talk about it in a moment, maybe. But then toward the end of chapter 3, he says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. And I love this, this verse. Paul is telling this to you and I. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ's, and Christ is God's. What is he saying? He's saying these petty debates, these petty things that we get worked up about, the way we feel about possessions, the way we feel about this world, the clinginess we have, is because we're not believing the reality of Christ being out. And Paul's saying, why are you worried about no offense, Dan. Why are you worried about golf clubs? Or why are you worried about this or that or the other? Why are you, what are you worried about? All things are yours. And then he goes on in verse four, chapter 4 and says, um, But with me it is very, a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Again, emphasizing that when we get the Gospel, we are not afraid of the judgment of other people. We are not afraid of God as a tyrant. And therefore, we hold this life so loosely, we can begin to give. So, is that your view of giving? That that you do it in secret, or maybe reinterpreted in self-forgetfulness? 
that if you gave $100 today, tomorrow you're not thinking about that. That was God's money. You're not, you're not walking away going, ah, oh, should I have done that? Nor are you walking away going, who can I tell that I did that? But you're actually thinking, I was simply a conduit of resources that God has given me. Is the gospel working that way? But I want to now move to point three because I think there's a deeper, that's the right way to do it. And there's a lot of practical implications on. And I want, let me make this caveat. Jesus is not saying no one should see you give. Right? That's not why we got rid of the basket in the back. It was just, I think it was just cumbersome. And anyway, there's a bunch of reasons, but we have passed them now. Nor is Jesus saying in verse one, don't ever do anything in front of other people. That's righteous. That's not what he's saying. He's saying don't do it for that purpose. When you give, don't do it for the praise of man. So, when we give of our tithes and offerings and our resources and more, um, time is a big one. And I think more than ever, we just hold on to every minute of our time. We're, we're, we're so scared of giving even a moment to someone else. What Jesus is saying is that's because we're hypocritical. That's because we're not living out of the Gospel. That's because we have entered into, at least for the moment, this relationship with God is tyrant, and so we are now trying to draw our resources, our spiritual life, from man. If God is a tyrant and distant, then maybe if I can do something for somebody else and be noticed, I'll feel that pleasure that I used to maybe feel from God. Does that make sense? We're moving into point three, then the reason, that was the right way to do it, but the right reason to give. This, this word keeps popping up in Matthew. In verse one he says, uh, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So this idea of reward. And then in um, verse 4 he says, For your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And a lot of people come to this place, and I've been there at, at times I read this and go, oh, wait a minute, there it is again. There it is. Justification by faith out the door. Right? God is wanting to reward us, and I therefore need to Go do things to get that reward. Is that a fear of yours? Um, C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory I think spends the entire essay, I highly recommend that essay. It is not real long. It's like nine pages. You can find it on, online for free. He's really unpacking this idea of reward. And he does this masterful job, but he begins by saying, look, when you think about a reward, take for example marriage. If someone gets married so they, they can get money, the reward, they're a mercenary. Or they're, they're another, that's the term he uses, but I'm thinking of a modern term we might use, but you're, you're a, you know, you're basically trying to, uh, what is it, sugar daddy, maybe would be another term. Yeah, you're getting your, your uh, money, and so the marriage is sort of secondary. He says, but if you fall in love, and then get married, and the reward of mar- is marriage itself, it's the product of the thing you did. That's a natural reward. That's an ex, uh, ex, 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 intrinsic reward, excuse me. So you're actually getting the thing. The, it's the consummation of the thing you were after. Um, that's a very helpful idea. And I think we see that with Paul in 1 Corinthians. When he says, Paul watered and Apollos plants, or however the order. But, but God gave growth and the wages, which is the other word for reward, was that growth. In other words, when Paul talks about rewards, it's always the product of the planting. It's never, and all these people came to know Jesus, and then I went over here to heaven, and I got like this mansion. It was awesome. It's like a, 
a great network marketing thing, you know. I did all I was supposed to do. I walked through all the hoops, and now I've got the pink mansion. Um, anyway, is that why you do things? Okay, so rewards are an outflow of the very thing we're doing. And what he says is this. As marriage is the proper reward of love, the proper rewards are not simply tacked onto the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. Now, the word consummation. Does that ring any bells? Where he's going to go with this? What is it that is the, the, the source of everything you hope for? In years past, I would say probably before the modern era, Christians longed for heaven. They longed for it differently than we do now. Now, I think there's kind of two sides. Either we just can't wait and we want to be rescued because we hate our life. It's just so, we hate it so badly. We're like, just tomorrow we want you to come. Or it's so distant because things are pretty good. You know, we've got the job, we've got things set up. Life looks good, family's happy, nobody's got a disease, we're happy. Heaven can wait. And you've even heard this. People say, oh, I would hate to die and go to heaven now because I want this to happen. I want to go to Colorado one more time. You know, something like that. Um, and it's not a bad idea. I'm pretty sure heaven's more beautiful. So, I think that the point is, we've lost sight of heaven. And Lewis says this. He says, in speaking of this desire for, our own, for a far-off country, and he calls it nostalgia. How many of you have experienced nostalgia? I remember one time, I don't know what happened, but I'm at my house, I'm watching TV, I think my brother's sitting there, we're just sitting there mindlessly watching television, I'm in, I'm like 15 or 16, and it dawned on me, he's graduated and probably going to move out, and I'm going to graduate, and my mom's going to be alone. And I began just walking through the house, just overwhelmed by how, horribly difficult it was going to be for my single mom without her boys. And I was actually probably even just sweeping, just like, I just, I, this crazy moment of nostalgia. I look back now and think, she probably would have been okay. You know? Uh, and that's the point. Nostalgia overemphasizes events. Emily on her computer has pictures of our life just flashing by. So I'm walking in the room and there they are. Like, I remember that house, you know, and I remember, but yet I think if I ever stop myself and think, what was I doing in that moment when the picture is being clicked? I was probably irritated, in a hurry, life was busy. There's something about, I think, pictures and memories that make us realize something. And that is that there is the existence of a far-off country. And that's what the Bible promises. And that's what we need to be longing for. But we get so caught up in the mundane. We get so caught up in the everyday uh, this is this last third point is going to have a lot of C.S. Lewis in it because he, I should have just read the whole way to glory, but it takes too long. He says we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, and so Lewis is making this point. That rewards, this idea that Jesus is talking about, is not you get a reward because of what you've done. So you're now leaving elementary view of rewards, okay? But here's the problem. You, we often step into this more mature view and say, oh, we should never do anything with a motivation for personal gain. And Lewis later in this article argues and says that against that, 
that actually, after thinking about it, he realized the reward of heaven is everything. I mean, isn't, doesn't Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant? Isn't that a goal? But the key is for the, let's call this the uber-mature view of rewards. It's because of the blessing of God. Do you think God loves you? Do you think that Christ cherishes you? Do you think that if you were to walk into heaven, God would go, oh yeah, I forgot, you're coming here too? Or do you think He would open His arms? Because if that's your view, that changes heaven. And all of a sudden, we can begin to look at Scriptures differently and realize the reward is so beautiful and so great that maybe we can hold this life a little bit more loosely. So that is what I think Jesus is doing with rewards. But he finishes with something else. And I'm gonna, this is my last Lewis quote for a while. Nope, there's one at the conclusion. Sorry. Last, second to last for a while. He says, so here we are, aware of this amazing reality of our future home, but what do we do now? He said, it is hardly possible, it's, it's very possible for us to think too often about ourselves, but it is hardly possible for us to think too often about our neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it. Are you loving? Do we love our neighbors? If we don't love our neighbors, we're hypocrites. I'm with you. We're all there. Now we have, we have varying degrees. One day, one moment, we really do. In one minute, we're so selfish. But, Loving our neighbor, and that's where Lewis finally gets to this idea that next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Why? Because your hobby is not immortal. Your career is not immortal. Your own looks, even your body, uh, earthly body, is not immortal. Right? The way you feel right now is not immortal. What is immortal is your soul, your future person in heaven, but also your neighbor is immortal. And he's saying, if you saw the most dreadful person on earth, as they will look if they go to heaven, you would be tempted to worship that person. And likewise, if you took the most glorious looking human who was not a Christian and saw them as they really were, you would be so repulsed you could never get the image out of your mind. But we just go along our lives and ignore the people around us. And so we don't do. And we don't see needy people. Okay. What do we do with this? Let's wrap it up. You are needy. If you are thinking that needy people are out there, you're mistaken. So am I. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Until we see that we are needy. Until we see we are broken. Until we see that Jesus has rescued us and has continues to apply His blood to us and that there's nothing in you apart from the blood of Christ that is good, then you will not think you're needy. And if you don't think you're needy, then you'll turn around and help needy people as beneath you. And all that does, that hypocrisy, is it actually lowers you below what you envision them to even be. But in Christ, we join alongside of needy people. Have you ever met a person who thinks they found the cure to something? Right? They will tell you about it. They will email you. They will call you. They'll buy you a book. And and, and that's what we do as humans. We want to celebrate things that we think are helpful. Is Jesus helpful? 
practically, we need to, and this is in closing, we need to be praying for those around us. Right? Praying for salvation. Praying for people in their plight, their difficulties, their struggle. But the only way we can do this is first, if we are praying repentant prayers, Lord, I am sinful. I don't believe this. I Forgive me, Father, for thinking I have it together. Or, if I don't feel like I have it together, forgive me for not coming to you, for waiting until I have it together. Repentance. And then we pray prayers of sonship, boldness, right? We pray about, we, we, we meditate on passages of Scripture that convince us that, that neither height nor depth nor length nor breadth can separate from the love of God, and we get that infected in us. And then we start to long for those around us to pray.